Good morning, church. It's a privilege for me to be here. It's a joy. I'm excited. And uh, I'd like to start off with a story that will serve as an illustration for the rest of the sermon. And since it snowed last night, I don't know if you guys noticed that, I think it was a way that God welcomed me here in Kansas to remind me of where I'm from in Russia, where we're at. There's lots of snow usually. And uh, so I'd like to start with a story that has to do with Christmas. It's Christmas time, and you're preparing gifts for your relatives, and uh, you buy a nice sweater for your uncle and for your aunt. You buy some chocolates, you package them, put them in a the box, and uh, plan to ship them out. Plan to ship them out. And as you're in the process, you have a friend that comes over and says hello. And your friend knows, notices the box that you have standing, being ready to ship out. And he says, you shipping those? And you say, yeah. He says, well, I'm a, I'm a mailman. How about I pick these boxes and drop them off for you? So save you, save you the trip to the post office. Great. Sure. Go ahead. Thank you for the help. Appreciate it. So your friend takes the boxes and leaves. Christmas goes by, time is over, and uh, it so happens for whatever reason you end up stopping by your friend's place. Knock on the door, he opens the door, and uh, he greets you. But as you look at him, what he's wearing is very familiar to what you bought some time ago. And you look at it and you realize that's the sweater you bought for your uncle for a Christmas gift. And you think, that's odd. And then you come in and you sit down and he offers some treats to you and he gives you some candy. And as you look at the box, again, you're just surprised that it looks very familiar. It looks just like the box you bought for your aunt for Christmas. And you realize what happened. You realize that instead of taking the box and dropping them off at the mail. He actually took it for himself. He took the sweater for himself, he took the chocolates, and enjoyed them. Today, we're going to read a psalm and study a psalm, Psalm 67. Let's go ahead and read it, and I think you'll understand how this may be a comical story, but it fits into the theme that we'll be talking about. If you open with you Psalm 67, let's read it together. For the choir director, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on the earth your salvation among the nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us. 
that all the ends of the earth may fear him. The only event that's actually mentioned in this psalm is in verse 6. The earth has yielded its produce. The earth has produced a harvest, basically. This psalm is, doesn't have a specific author who wrote it. We don't know whether it was David or somebody else in the psalms. And the event isn't exactly clear, but it seems that this could have been written during the harvest time. Uh, it could have been written during the harvest time, but it's not a psalm of thanksgiving, as we can see it and look at it. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that most likely was offered during the time of, of, of the harvest as a thanksgiving, as a prayer to God during that time. That's the context of this psalm. And uh, I wanted us to look at Just break it down for our convenience as we look at it. I wanted to maybe see three expressions which reflect the heart of God. Three expressions which reflect the heart of God. First one will be the prayer for blessings. And that we see in the first couple of verses. Then after that we'll see the plea for worship. The plea for worship. And the last is the expectation of blessings. So those are the three expressions which reflect the heart of God. The first one is the prayer for blessing. That's the two verses, two first verses that we look at. As we analyze this psalm, uh, if you look at it, the first two verses, the focus is on who? On us. God be gracious to us. Bless us. Cause his face to shine upon us. The us is talking about the people of God. It's a prayer for the people of God, for yourself, basically for us as believers. It's different than from the other verses. From 3 and on to uh, 4 and 5, then he talks about a different audience, a different group. And we'll see that we'll get there. But the prayer begins as a typical prayer that we would pray. A typical prayer where we ask God something for us, and that is fine. God expects that of his children. God expects that, and that is uh, normal. Let's look at the prayer itself, how it begins. He says, God, be gracious. He's addressing God, and the first thing that he asks for is grace. Perfect place to start. I hope every one of us starts at this point. We ask for grace. What is grace? It's God's undeserved favor. God's grace is when we come to God and ask for grace, we admit our undeservedness, that we don't deserve his favor. We don't deserve what he is about to give us, what we're asking for. It's an attitude of humility, and that is an appropriate way to come before God when we ask something for him. We start asking for his grace, that he would be gracious to us, that we need his grace. Without his grace, we would not get anything, and we could not ask for anything. And that's where the psalmist begins. Be gracious to us. Show your grace to us. Forgive us our sins, we could say. Show your favor regardless of our inability 
to be consistent in our relationship with you, with others. Then he continues, be gracious to us and bless us. He doesn't stop at the grace part. He goes further. He asks for a blessing. God, bless us. This blessing is a physical blessing and a spiritual blessing. If we look at the context where this is written, most likely the blessing that they're asking for, especially in the context of a harvest, is a physical blessing. He's asking God to bless them, to give them what they need. The harvest was a big deal back then. I mean, maybe in this part of the world it's fairly large too, but honestly, we can, even if there's a bad harvest in some part of the country or some part of the sea, a place, a location, you can usually go to a store and still get the produce you need. It might be more expensive, uh, might come a little later, but usually you can still get what you need. Um, in those times, if the harvest was bad, if the harvest didn't come, if the rains didn't come when they needed to, if you didn't have much of a harvest, that could really mean you'd have a short diet for the rest of the year until the next harvest. So that was a big deal for survival. And so they prayed for God's blessing. But in that blessing, it takes, it's not just a physical blessing. They ask for a spiritual blessing because it's, a, it's that spiritual blessing and realizing that everything comes from God, that God provided everything. If we look at the nation of Israel, it was very clearly connected. Their physical harvest was connected to their spiritual walk before the Lord. And it's that spiritual understanding who God is, who they are, that would allow God to bless them and give them their blessing. But again, it's a common prayer that we would expect. You start with grace, that's right, you need God's forgiveness, God's grace. You ask for a blessing, whatever field. It doesn't specify clearly here, but it's both physical and spiritual. And we do that. And that's normal and that's right. There is nothing Wrong with that. And then continues, and he says, and cause his face to shine upon us. As soon as we get to this phrase, it probably brings back some memories of another passage in the Bible. It brings us back to Numbers chapter, tw- uh, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. I'll read that for you. Numbers chapter 6. We can call it the priestly benediction or the Aaronic uh, blessing. And that was very common. That's a prayer, a blessing, basically. Not a prayer, but a blessing, a benediction that uh, God gave to the priests through Moses to Aaron to bless the nation of Israel. Verse 24, I'll just, just listen to it and see the similarities. Numbers chapter 6 is verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That was the, the blessing that the priest would often pronounce over the people of God. And this would be especially common during this time of festivals when they're celebrating the harvest And so it would be natural for the psalmist to take this blessing and make it a prayer. And that is what we see here. If we look at the blessing, he says, the Lord bless you. This is a priest pronouncing over the people. 
shine his face on you, be gracious to you. But here we have it, it's a prayer. He's talking about bless us, be gracious to us, make his face to shine upon us. This word or this phrase, his face to shine upon us. Uh, This is clearly an expression that uses uh, human symbology here to represent who God is. Uh, Cause his face, that's to, to, uh, to refer to God's presence and his favor. An example of that would be a father when he looks at his children with favor and does something pleasant, something good for them. It's that expression with joy, giving them something that they want. And that's what the prayer is here. God, look at us with favor. Not with, not with a rod in your hands, but with favor. And bless us and give us what we need. Be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Often that's where our prayers end. And this is where I would uh, commend us to keep reading and to keep looking at what comes after that. As the prayer ends, it's a good prayer, it's a necessary prayer. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. In verse 2, he goes on and he gives us the reason why he's praying for this. He gives us the reason why He's asking for God's blessing. Why he's asking for God's grace and why he wants God to cause his face to shine upon him. In verse 2, we see the reason for that. And that reason is that your way may be known on the earth. Your salvation among all nations. Very interestingly here, he's talking about not just himself, not just the nation, not just the chosen nation of God, but he's talking about the nations. He's talking about the earth. And what's interesting here, he's not, the focus is not here on uh, the psalmist, on him. It's not, the focus is not on uh, the nations per se. It's on God. He wants God's way to be known. His salvation. And that's very important. The reason he's praying for these blessings and he wants these blessings to be used, a demonstration of who God is to the surrounding people. Let's look at the details of this. He says, may your way be known. Known here is not just an intellectual kind of ascension, um, but one of the commentators says, people who know the Lord and His way are people who put their faith in Him and experience His grace. To know God's way is not just to understand it, but to know it is for those who have really trusted God, who have walked according to His promises, have walked according to His instruction and have seen God be faithful in his way. They're the ones that know his way. The way that's talking about here, that's a a common phrase, know his way. 
Uh, and that's referring to the way is usually displayed in the activities that God does, the, 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 the activities that display God's character. And that's how it's often used in the Psalms. When it talks about God being gracious, that's God's way. God being uh, faithful, that's God's way. God being a God who judges, that's God's way. That represents, shows his character. And that is what the psalmist is praying for. That God would be kind to them, that God would bless them, that God would answer their prayers to give them what they need for life in order that, in order that God's way would be known among the earth. And to explain a little more, he goes further. The parallel line to that is your salvation among the nations. He explains it further that it's not just just about God, just who he is, but his salvation. God's character, God's desire is ultimately to people ends up being his salvation that he offers. That's what the nations need at the end of the day. They need God's salvation. They don't need just information about God. They need people to know him and to know him in a salvific way. They need to know God's salvation. And here the earth, the nations, that's again referring to all those who don't know the Lord. That's every people. That's not a specific race. That's not a specific group. That's all of them. What's interesting here is that this is Israel. That's, we read this in the Old Testament. But this is no surprise that God's plan is not for a specific nation, not for a specific group. It is for all the world, all the peoples. It is clearly expressed in what God promised to Abraham back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, if you remember that, when God commanded Abraham to live, leave where he was living and start walking, start going, and he promises something to him. He promises a number of things to him. But the very last thing that he promises in that promise is in verse 3, chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 3. It says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then he says this, And in you, in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the heart of God. This is the desire of God to bless all the people. And the psalmist understands that. He understands that God has blessing him and will bless him. But those blessings aren't primarily just for him. Those blessings are to serve as a means to glorify God that God would be known through all the nations. And just like in that story that I told you to begin with of the mailman. We don't want to be like that mailman who receives the blessings of God, who receives the gifts of God, receives the, the spiritual blessings of the Spirit, of love, peace, joy, kindness, self-control, and just keep it to ourselves. But to see it as something that we are the channel of God that God uses 
to bring to other people, to other nations. To see it as, to, to pray this prayer completely. So it's not just a one-sided prayer, but that we see God blessing us, but there's a purpose for that blessing. And that we would include that second part of the prayer that the psalmist is praying. So that's the, the first part. And we see that in the New Testament too, as we read one of the, let's say Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. So you've been blessed by God. You've been given spiritual blessings to live in the way that honors God. Live in the way when you do your good works. So when they see your good works, what? They glorify God. They glorify your Father who is in heaven. So this is not exclusive to this. We see this heart of God throughout the scriptures. He wants us to live right. But that also has a point to glorify him and that others would see that and glorify our Father. Any demonstration of God's grace, which we saw in verse 1, has the purpose of showing that he is a saving God. God wants to put his kindness on display, his glory on display to say, and he blesses us, but that has a purpose. This is not a selfish prayer. Selfish, he's not praying just for himself, but he's praying for God's glory for the nations to hear God's way. So that's the first part of the psalm. It's the prayer for blessing that we saw. The second part is a plea. It's also in a prayer format, but it's a plea for worship. Here the psalmist changes his focus. Before he was talking about us, talking about the people of God. In verse 3, he changes his focus and he talks about let the peoples. And just to kind of simplify, if you ever try to memorize this psalm, I'll give you a little assistance. Verse 3 and 5 are exactly the same, are identical. Uh, I always love things when I have to memorize them. And if it's exactly the same, simplifies the process. So verse 3 and 5 are exactly the same. Let the, na- let the peoples praise you. O God, let all the peoples praise you. It's a plea for worship. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. This formulation, praise you, is, would often be used of a corporate worship. This is calling the nations, the peoples, to praise God. Verse 4 is kind of the center almost of the psalm. Let me just read verse 5, same thing. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. So those two verses, those two kind of uh, pleas for worship point to verse 4, which happens to be the center of it. Praising, and then in verse 4 we see, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Why? It's also important to see that, that the focus isn't ultimately on people or the nations. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy because they are forgiven. That would be appropriate, it seems like, right? Because they have an inheritance in heaven, that would be appropriate. That wouldn't be bad. But look what the psalmist is focused on here. He's focused on God himself. Let them be glad and sing for joy. Why? For you will judge the peoples with uprightness 
and guide the nations of the earth. The focus is still on God, on who God is and what God does and how God demonstrates his glory. And that is ultimately our joy and our excitement and satisfaction in life and our ability to go through trials is when we look at God and what he does, right? And that's where these nations are to find their gladness and sing for joy when they look at God and what he does and who he is. Here it's referring to, says, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness. This word judge, uh, often we think of it as a negative context, like a judge at the end of, let's say, the world judging people. Here it's most likely in this context referring to someone who is a judge as a, who governs well, who leads properly, who knows what's right and wrong, who is able to discern the situations and be the, the right judge of, um, of the events and make the right decision. So it's talk about, it refers more about governing. You govern. You can translate this. You judge the peoples with uprightness or equity or without, um, without favoritism. When God is in control, when God judges, when God rules, when God governs, everything goes back to its places. And the last part of that, you guide with the nations uh, and guide the nations. God is a, a guide, the one who leads. This same word comes up in a very common, I'm sure some of you guys memorize Psalm 23. He restores my soul and guides me in the paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Interesting there too. For his name's sake. God is the one that not only governs properly, he guides. And this part of it has to do not only with current times. We know that God does that now. But it also has a hint that points to the future. He will ultimately judge completely and righteously and guide the nations in the future. This is the, the call, the prayer, and the plea of the psalmist. He begins with praying for himself, for the nation, for the people of God. Humbly coming before him, asking for a blessing. And then he switches, talking to the nations, calling them to worship. Calling them to, um, to find their joy in him. Because he is a great God and he deserves the worship. I wanted to take a couple of minutes, a few minutes, and uh, give you a few application points at this point. Uh, maybe as some lessons, we're not done with the sermon, but some lessons that I've learned while being in Russia as a missionary. I'll give you a little secret. When you go to the mission field, uh, you don't know everything. Uh, you're not an expert in everything. And you still need to learn a lot. And that was the case with me. And when I got there, as I mentioned a little bit um, during the uh, Sunday school hour, I guess, the first hour at 9 o'clock, that uh, the churches are small in the town where we're at. If you go to the other smaller cities even, uh, some have usually just one church of maybe 30, 40 people. 
Some have no churches at all. And so whoever comes there, who has come there in the last 20, 25, 30 years, their role was primarily to do evangelism. There is no churches to shepherd. There are no peoples in these churches. So you've got to go out and you've got to evangelize. And so I've learned some valuable lessons of not just how, but some, I think, principles in evangelism that I'd like to just share with you. I think they might be helpful. I think they might be, uh, since we're talking about evangelism, since we're talking about uh, missions, might be helpful for you even in this context where, we, where you are in Kansas in America. Uh, the man I learned this from was a missionary that came 25 years ago. Uh, just a quick biography. He came there with his, with his wife, had his children there, born there, uh, moved to a city that didn't have any believers at all. No churches, no believers. It was a city of probably around uh, 30,000, <clears throat> a little town. And, uh, and he came, he was very eager to serve, to reach the people, but he had no really plan or wasn't sure how, how to go about it. But in the process, he developed a very good approach and good principles that he applied that ultimately, not only did God allow a church to be established there that's thriving now, but through his ministry and his evangelistic outreaches or his evangelistic uh, approach and principles that he applied, God not only added to that church, but allowed him to disciple other people or people through that church that became pastors of a number of different locations. And so to me, that was kind of examples like, well, what, do you, what did you do? How did you do it? How's your evangelism different from what I did and learned in America? And in many ways, it's not really different. It's just a couple of key principles that were, I think, important and are important for all of us. One that I would recommend to you is that designate a specific time you will focus on reaching the lost. For him, he realized there's enough stuff, have stuff happening, and we talk about you know, evangelism, special for him, that was like, it needs to be done all the time. But he realized there's enough things that crept into your schedule that kept you from doing evangelism. And, and for him, too, he was, I mean, kind of afraid of it, too. I mean, all of us sometimes are frightened by the, the coming up to strangers possibly talking to them about the gospel so he decided for him monday was going to be the day monday was going to be the day that he focuses on evangelism it was easy because it was right after sunday so if there was a sunday service whether he preached or somebody else preached there was material that he could easily and share with somebody else that he would evangelize and so he decided that monday was going to be but the principle there was designate a specific time you do evangelism. And it's very logical. Anything in our life that's important, we find time, set aside time for it. When it comes to our health, when we need to diet, when we need to exercise, we usually don't say, I'm going to do it all the time or I will do it sometime because we know that will never happen. We usually say, I will do it every evening or three times a week. We have a specific time, specific plan, when we'll do it. It's the same thing in our spiritual or Christian walk. When somebody says, we need to read the Bible, read the psalmist, uh, first psalm. If you remember, it says, uh, blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. This is like constant in God's word. 
constantly thinking about God's word. But we know that's not, it's, if we just say we're going to be always in God's word, it, we won't. It's not going to happen until we what? Until we set aside time when that happens. We know that's the same thing with prayer. Bible says pray without ceasing. Pray all the time. But unless we set aside time for that, we'll never have that praying without ceasing. Unless we have our private time of prayer, we're never going to have this constant time of prayer. Same thing with evangelism. And I think that's a valuable principle that I learned from him. That unless we have a weekly time when we focus on evangelism, we'll probably never get to the point where we are always thinking about it. And for him, that was Monday. And of course, the first question that I asked him was like, well, well how do you do it? What do you, what, what, okay, you have a time set for evangelism. And, uh, and he said, well, if you don't have anybody to evangelize to, you just pray. Pray earnestly that God would give you somebody. So that starts with prayer. And it's true, evangelism, as you guys know, that uh, it's God the one that, it, it's God who saves. So our coming up and talking and finding opportunities, that's great, it's, it's necessary. But we pray, we, we trust and we know that God is sovereign and that God has his people out there, that he's working in their lives. It's not just in our life that he's working. And so you pray that God would bring somebody into your life with whom you can share the gospel. So you have a specific time that you focus on that and have that every week, I would say. That's what he does, and it works out very effectively because he sets time aside for that. Second is, yeah, you pray for someone that God would bring into your life. And third, the way he did is he realized what does God use to save people? What does God use through his spirit to save souls? The answer normally would be the gospel, which is true. But where do we find the gospel? We find it in God's word, the Bible. And realizing that, he said, decided that he was going to designate a time, pray that God would bring people into his life, and really pray, and really seek those people. And then he would meet with them, and then he would invite them to come and study the Bible with them. He would invite them to join him. In Russia, it's a little bit simpler. People will come to your house. Maybe not the first time, but they will. It's a little simpler. Uh, in this context, it might be a little different. Maybe you have to do it in the coffee shop, something like that. But his desire was, I want them to know the Bible. And in one sense, it's almost easier to, I think, it seems like logically, to call someone to read the Bible with you or to study the Bible than just to share a specific speech that you have prepared. Uh, the Bible, in one sense, that's what we do in the, in the villages. Often when we go there, we talk to the children or the adults there. We ask them if, if they have a Bible. And many, most of the time they say no. We ask them if they've ever read the Bible and they say no. And then, usually with a very kind of a shocked expression on our face, what? You haven't read the Bible? It's the most influential book in all, of, in all the world. It's the book that affected and influenced more societies and countries than any other book. It's the one that tops every bestseller list. They don't list it there because it would always be on top. And you haven't read it? And usually people will know. Um, and then it 
kind of becomes very simple. It's like, well, would you like to know what it, a book like that has to say? What it says? And then it makes it for a transition to find a time when you can meet with them and to read the Bible. And so that was his approach, is to read the scriptures, to present the God of the Bible through his word. And he would meet with them during that time that he said once a week. Uh, in fact, right now, he still does it after doing it for many years, moving on through a number of different churches, setting up different churches. He still does it every week. And as a result of this approach that he's done, uh, at least one person every year comes to the Lord through his home Bible study that he does with non-believers. There's no gimmicks really to it. It's very simple. Set time aside, pray about it, that God would send somebody your way, and when he does, uh, <clears throat> yes, share the, this, the, the gospel, but ultimately you want to do more than that if possible. You want to show him from Scripture, and then you want to guide him. And the advantage of what he does ultimately is when he brings people into his house and when they study the Scripture together with him, uh, when they come to the Lord, the process doesn't end. He continues to meet with them on a different day because now they're believers. Now Monday is not for them. <clears throat> now they have other days of the week. And continues to meet with them and disciple them. And that's how a number of the men that he's brought to the Lord have not only gone into ministry but become, have become pastors is because he continues to disciple them. And they grow and mature and they become active in the churches and then they continue pursuing other ministries and some become <clears throat> pastors. So I would say that is something that all of us need to be aware of. Ministry and evangelism isn't just the pastor's responsibility. It's all of us. And all of us can't do it. If we know the scripture, enough from the scripture, and there's enough help out there, uh, Pastor Dave showed a little Bible study material that is, I think, eight lessons on the Bible and what the Bible says about key topics. It's just go through that, study that. So there's ways to do it, but I would encourage. But first thing is, if we're serious about evangelism, if that really matters to us, if we think that's important, you have to find a time for that in your schedule. I know all of our schedules are busy, and that's what I realize in mine. Even there in Russia, sometimes you've just got so many things happening that you're, you're doing everything but really what you ultimately came to do, and that is dangerous. And so when we pray this prayer that God would bless us, there's a reason for God's blessing. He wants to use us to bless the nations that they would know about God, and we should be serious about evangelism because God is. And we should be encouraged because God is the one that ultimately is working in our hearts. But we need to approach it seriously but prayerfully and see what God will do. So the first two points that we saw was prayer for blessing, a plea for worship. And the last one is the expectation of blessings. That one we find in verses 6 and 7. This is where we get to the point where kind of mentions some event that were when this prayer could have been prayed. In verse 6, the earth has yielded its produce. The earth has given its fruit. The earth has yielded its produce to harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us. Again, we see this 
reflection that God blesses us. God, we ask for a blessing, we ask for grace, and God gives it to us. God demonstrates his faithfulness. We expect the blessing because our God is good. We know he will provide the blessing. And we as, especially New Testament believers, we don't necessarily focus on just the physical blessings, even though we have those and we pray for those and God blesses that in that way too. But in the spiritual blessings especially, when he talks about the work that the Holy Spirit does in us, the love that comes through him, the peace, the joy, the comfort, the kindness. Those are qualities that the world does not know, not the real ones, and God gives that to us. And so the expectation of blessings, God will bless his people. And so he turns back to himself, and look what he does here, and he says, What? The reason, again, is that all the ends of the earth may fear him. That is the focus. That is God's plan. Let me just finish with a quote that I wanted to read from John Piper. If you've read John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, this is where he gets the title. And so I think it's a good commentary to end with our time. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is, as we saw in the psalmist. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not men. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions, too. Fuel and goal. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 67. But worship is also the fuel for missions. And I want to end on this note. that Worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. Passion for God in worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and extol in him. him. I will sing praises to his name, almost high. Missions begins and ends in worship. Father, thank you. That you are a gracious God, a kind God, that you love us, bless us. But help us to see as you see, beyond ourselves, beyond just our comfortable circles here in church. 
Help us to see the world around us who doesn't know you, who doesn't worship you. And I pray that you would guide us into those places, into those houses, into those neighborhoods, and that we would find a way to share of your goodness, of your grace, of your kindness. Amen.